Church, it's uh, really good to be with you guys again today. Um, I hope you were blessed last week as we started a new series in the book of Exodus in chapter 1. I'm going to read for us the passage for today, but uh, if you do have your Bible, um, go ahead and meet me in Exodus chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 22, and then we're going to transition into the second chapter of Exodus today. So this is the reading of God's word. It says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast them into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Exodus 2 verse 1 says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his, as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him from a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So last week as we started the series in Exodus and beginning with chapter 1, what you and I noticed is that it began with a list of names, a genealogy. And it was a reminder for us as we learned last week, a reminder that God does not forget his people and God does not forget his promises. But when you, when you and I read our text today, I think what you're going to notice is that there isn't a list of names in chapter 2. In fact, when you read our passage today, we don't know the name of uh, the father of Moses. They just say it's a Levite man and a Levite woman. So we don't know their names, the father or the mother. We don't even know the name of Moses' sister. We don't have the name of Pharaoh, right? That's a title, not a name. We don't know the name of Pharaoh's daughter who was a significant part in Exodus chapter 2. And we don't know the name of the um, servant who was with Pharaoh's daughter, But there is one name that is mentioned in our text today, and it's the only name that's mentioned in the text today, and it's the name Moses, and that's intentional because the name Moses has significance to the whole story of Exodus. And so today we're going to look at the story of Moses, and and, uh, especially how his story began. And I want to just kind of begin by saying this, that as you think about the story of Moses, I want you to think about your life. And I want you to know, and I want us to know that we're all born into a story. We're all born into a situation. We don't get to really choose it. We have no control over it. But we're all born into a story and a situation. There was no exception for Moses. See, Moses, when he was born... He was brought into a story and a circumstance and a situation in which the Israelites were growing in number. They multiplied. 
And because of that, Egypt felt threatened. And so Pharaoh would go off and he would despise and he would come up with this plan. It was an evil and, and wicked plan to really, um, to really minimize and oppress and bring the Israelites into slavery so that they would no longer grow and no longer multiply. And, and so he had this order or this um, law that every Hebrew boy would be put to death. It, it, there was a death sentence in that day. For every Hebrew boy born, that they would actually be cast into the Nile River and be left to die. So that's the story of Moses, the story in which he entered in. That's the situation that Moses entered in. Again, he had no choice. He didn't didn't choose that. He had no control over that. It was just a story that he was brought into. And from the moment that Moses was born, I want you to understand this. From the moment Moses was born, he was supposed to die. From the moment that Moses' mother was conceived with Moses, that there was around their situation a law that that boy would not live. So he was brought into that situation. I want you to listen. So Moses was born into a people of slavery, right? He had a death sentence. He was supposed to die by the law. But I love what what. Exodus 2 says, it says, you know, the Bible says that his mother saw that he was a fine child. And I love that. I just want to note that um, it's funny to me because Moses is the one who actually wrote this. And so he's actually saying that he's a fine child. He's actually saying to himself or to us that he was a fine child. And just a funny little note there. But he, the mother saw that he was a fine child and decided to, to not let him die. But in order to let him live, she would hide him and keep him in hiding. And so she did that for about three months until the baby got big and was like, I can't hide this baby any longer. What, what am I going to do? And so she could not hide the baby any longer. She put Moses in a basket made of papyrus reeds, right? Okay, so she just made this basket fit for a three-month baby And I want you to understand, this is not modern day, 2020, you know, where parents go to Target or or on Amazon or, you know, babies are us and get the nice baby seat, car seat with leather seats and, you know, cup holder. It's not, it's not like that. This is papyrus, incredibly uncomfortable um, and wrapped into a basket in which Moses would be placed. Now, I want you to think about who Moses would eventually become, but this is how his story began. Just put in a papyrus basket. He was abandoned, separated from his own mother to Pharaoh's daughter. And Moses has no control over this. This was Moses' story. This was his race to run. This was the situation that he was brought into. And the only way Moses could survive is by being tossed from one home to another. If you guys didn't catch this already, I know the words aren't there, but Moses was fostered and Moses was adopted. He was tossed around from one home to another home at some point with his mom and another point with Pharaoh's daughter. and, And Moses was just being tossed around just to survive and just to live. And you know, we read that without feeling the weight of what that child must have gone through. I know that Exodus doesn't go into detail of what Moses 
must have felt through with child development and what separation anxieties he must have felt. But when I read this passage in Exodus chapter 2 and I think about a child or a baby tossed from one home or separated from their family, separated from their caretaker and brought into another home, not just once but twice and multiple times, I can't help but to think about my story and my son and my adopted son because when I and my wife have adopted Benjamin, our son, at 20 months, We saw the pain he had to go through. We didn't know that a 20-month-old can actually express that much pain without using words. He cried in such a way that explained everything. See, by the the time my son Benjamin was only 20 months old, he had actually three different homes, uh, three different caretakers, three different moms. He had his biological mom. Then for a period of time, he had his foster mom, and now he has his adoptive mom. And now he's in a, you know, permanent home, but the journey that he had to go through, even at 20 months, is not easy for a baby. It's not easy for a child. I still remember vividly my wife and I were in Korea, and that first night we got to have Benjamin with us as a family, and we had him sleep in our own bed. And I remember that that first morning we woke up together as a family of three. It was a day of joy and celebration for my wife and I. For two years we've been going through this process of adoption. We were so happy. I mean, it was just the best day until I woke up and saw my son's face because when he woke up, I think that that day before, he thought he would just be with us and he would wake up the next morning with his foster parents. But when he woke up, I saw, I've never seen his eyes so big. He woke up and his eyes were so big and he looked around scoping the environment, scoping this new place that he was in. And his eyes were big, not full of joy and hope. His eyes were full of uh, stress and worry and grief and pain. And he couldn't say it, but I could tell just by looking into his eyes that he wasn't home. That he was yet again brought to a different home and a different mom. And I felt the weight of that as an adoptive dad, and my wife felt that as an adoptive mom. And I can't help but to help us see some of that in Exodus chapter 2, that when Moses was being tossed around, this this isn't a hot potato you just toss around, this is a life. And so Moses is probably experiencing incredible separation anxiety, and I don't know how that affected his childhood development, but this is probably not the kind of story that you and I would want to be born into. But such was the story of Moses. He was tossed around. He's not the cause of it. It wasn't his fault. Moses himself says, I was a fine baby. (laughs) And so it's not like he deserved it. He didn't ask for it. It just happened. It just happened. And, and just the story, you know, just as this story from Moses, we too are born into a story, right? You, you guys realize that, that you and I, we were born into a particular era and situation and environment for a particular place with a particular people at a particular time in the history of humanity, that we are all born into a story. And there are things in life, we have to see this and realize that there are just things in life that we have no control over, right? Like I, we have no control over where we were born and who we were born to. It just happened. But here's the deal. The Christian life is, 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 is to know that 
even what was meant for, um, for evil, God can still work for good. That no matter what hardship or affliction that we were brought into, no matter what circumstance that we were brought into that brought hardship and adversity, we can't even control it. What we can still know as people whose lives are in Christ, with the power of Christ, right, with, 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 with God's strength and grace within us, we can know that even what was meant for evil, God can use and work for his good. What I want to share with us today is that if God is with us, what happens is then we don't let struggle bring us down and we don't let success puff us up. So, so we don't let struggles bring us down and, and make us feel like we're just scum and our lives are not worthy of anything because Christ is with us. And yet at the same time, we don't let success puff us up because that was not us. That was Christ with us, right? And so what we do is as Christians, we surrender both our struggle and our success unto God to do his work, to tell his story, to reveal his grace, and to give him glory. And I know that it's easier to do and it's easier said when life is good. When life is kind of on cruise control and you're, you know, things around you are are at a good pace, things are working well, and there's no real affliction in your life, but it's harder to do and harder to understand and harder to trust when we are in the face of affliction, right? But I want you to remember a scripture that comes from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 through 10. It should be on your screen. It says, this is what Paul says to the church there. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. This is Paul reminding the church in Corinth about what God has spoken to Paul, and he wants to speak it to the church in Corinth, and I want to speak this over us. Paul says that he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my not strength, but my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, Then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amen? And so, so many times when we are in the middle of a storm, it's it's hard to see where God's grace and God's power is, right? Like, I I don't think there's really any of us that when we're faced with affliction, we go, oh, there's God's grace. I think a lot of us in the face of adversity will, will say, where is God? In the midst of a storm, it's cloudy, it's foggy, it's dark, and where is God? Paul says that in his weakness is when the power of Christ can rest on him. Paul says that in his weakness, the the grace of God is sufficient, which leads me to my first point. Here it is, that it is through the circumstances we face, we experience God's grace. It is through the circumstances we face we experience God's grace. And I know that's not comfortable, right? Because that means you have to go through a circumstance. That you got to actually follow God's plan. You got to actually go through some discomfort. And no one loves hardships. No one loves affliction, right? And if you're anything like me, the first thing that you ask is, how do I get out of the mess? Right? When you see a dark cloud come in, you're like, how do I go the other way? How, how do I get over there on the other side? Right? Isn't that what we do? 
I think about when you're on the road and you're on the freeway, you're driving, and, you know, you're going 60, 70, right? And, and we all don't go past that because we're all good drivers and obey the law, but we're going at a good speed, and then, right, and then from kind of from a distance, you start to see the traffic build up. You, you guys know that scenario where there's traffic building up, and you start to see the cars uh, breaking, and you see the red lights, and, and you're, you're thinking to yourself, how do I go on the fastest lane? Because I see trouble, I see traffic coming our way. And if you're anything like me, that's what you will do, right? As, you're, as you see traffic in your lane, the first question is, how do I get to the fastest lane? How do I go to a different lane? Instead of staying in the lane, in order to avoid traffic, in order to avoid trouble, in order to get somewhere just a little bit, like three seconds faster, we will move lanes. Because a different lane, not my lane, but that lane, not my lane, but that lane, seems better, seems faster, seems okay. And so we go, how do I get there? Because that lane seems to be moving along. That lane seems to be faster. That lane seems to be in good condition. So how do I get there? Right? Isn't that what we do? You, you go through a situation and you're like, like why me? Why my, my lane? Like that person still has their job. That person's doing okay. How do I get in that lane? We all have a lane that God has called us to stay in. We all have a race that God has called us to run. There was no exception for Moses. This was Moses' lane. He had a race and he had a story. And yet in the providence and the sovereignty of God, God had a plan. God had a story that he would tell through Moses. See, all the while, God's telling us, and telling Moses, stay in your lane, stay in our lane, because it is through the circumstances we face, we get to experience God's grace. There was a crisis in the life of Moses even before he began, even before he was birthed. There was a crisis amongst his people. There was a crisis in which when he was born, he was supposed to die. And, and, and no matter how big the crisis, what we have to remember today is that our Christ is yet bigger. Our Christ is more powerful and the power of the crisis we're in. See, in your crisis, do not forget who Christ is. Don't focus only on the crisis. Get your eyes on who Christ is. And you're going to see that Christ is bigger. And his grace is sufficient. And his power can rest on you in our weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. His grace is sufficient in our weakness. And you're going to see this in the story of Moses, which leads me to my second point, and it's this, that oftentimes what God wants to do through you, he'll first do in you. What God wants to do through you, he'll first do in you. I want you to think about who Moses eventually becomes. We're not going to get into chapter 3 and the rest today, but I want you to think about, many of you know, you've seen the movie of who Moses would become and, and, and what Moses was really known for. He wasn't really known for what, he, what his story was in Exodus 1 and 2, but what God wants to do through Moses, he first does in Moses. And what God wants to do through you, church, he'll first do in you. See, Douglas Stewart, in his commentary, he says, you know, God's special provision for Moses cannot be missed. He's saying when you read 
the early stages of Moses' life and his birth and the circumstance and the provisions that have had to have had. I mean, the dominoes that have to be lined up for all of this to happen, for him to live. You can't help but to see God's special provision since the beginning of Moses' life. He needed provision just to live. He had no control, but God was in control. God in his provision preserved his life. He brought him under the care of just the right people, multiple people at the right time, at the right place, including Pharaoh's daughter who was basically going against her father's law and order to have every Hebrew Hebrew boy die. She was, I mean, I think her life could have been on the line there. I mean, she goes against her father. That's the grace of God. And I know Moses is writing that, you know, he's saying, well, I, it was because I was a fine child that my mom saved me, you know. But I want you to understand that it wasn't because Moses was so fine. It was because God it was and is so good. Even when Moses was put in a basket and left by the riverbanks, you guys might not have no- noticed this, but that word basket is the same Hebrew word used for the ark Noah's Ark in Genesis chapter 6. And that was intentional, inspired by the Holy Spirit to include that word to talk about the basket that saved Moses and preserved him. Why? Because it would symbolize that he would be safe, that he would be spared from death, and that he would be saved and delivered from the river. See, it was more than a basket woven by human hands. It was a vessel woven by the hands of God. That God had a plan. And Moses was put by the river in a basket, kind of left to see what would happen. And yet he was delivered. And eventually uh, later he would be brought back to Pharaoh's daughter. And she would raise Moses up. And she would be the the one to name him Moses. And and it says in Exodus chapter 2 verse Uh, 10 there that she named him Moses because, and this is the only name that's mentioned in our passage today, because she said, I drew him out of the water, out of the water. I want you to think about again who Moses would be and what he would do for the people of Israel as they crossed the Red Sea, as God delivered them from the water. Think about what God does with Moses first. He, he saves Moses from the waters before he saves Israel from the Red Sea. And most of us would, would think, man, like God chose this guy? Like he was supposed to die and tossed around he was fostered he was adopted like isn't there someone that another leader that God could have chosen and many of us would say maybe he he was born under the wrong conditions but in God's sovereign plan he was born under the perfect condition for a leader to be made the very person that will deliver the Israelites is the one who has been delivered himself I mean don't you find that interesting that the one who would save and walk through walk the Israelites through the parting and the delivering of the waters of the Red Sea was the one in which and when he was just a baby was delivered himself see what God wants to do through you he'll first do in you the call of Moses see many of you guys you read you think about Moses and you're like and if I ask When did the call of Moses begin? Many of you would say the burning bush. I thought so too. 
But I want to remind us today the call of Moses did not begin at the burning bush. It began before birth. There was a call in the life of Moses. There was something God was doing in his sovereign plan. And even what was meant for evil, God redeemed it, turned it for his good and his glory. See, God knew Moses. God saw Moses. God delivered Moses before God ever used Moses. Do you guys see that? And I want you and I to remember that before God ever uses us for his glory and for our good and for the good of the world, that God sees us. God knows us. God delivered us before God could ever use us. And so I, I just want to suggest to us that we must not speed our way into chapter 3, into the awesome, beautiful story about the burning bush until we actually see the subtle yet spectacular hand of God in chapter 1 and 2. Do not miss God at work in Exodus 1 and 2. Do not miss what God is doing in the life and the birth and the stages of Moses that he had to go through. It wasn't just about Exodus 3. It wasn't just about the burning bush. God was at work even before his birth. See, Moses did not sign up for all of this. When God was thinking about his people in slavery and he heard their cries, right? And he's looking for a leader. He's looking for a, a person to lead his people, someone to be a vessel of God, his voice, his power, and his grace and his love and mercy, he looked down and, and he saw Moses, but Moses didn't see it. In fact, the day when God was looking for a leader for his people, Moses didn't sign up. He didn't, he didn't hear that announcement. He skipped that service. He didn't go to that meeting. He, he didn't volunteer. He didn't go on planning center. He didn't go on the website. He's, he, he just, you know, he just wasn't there. And, and, and even when he heard the call, he didn't want to be part of it. Right? He didn't choose it is what I'm saying. God did. You know, many have asked me, I've been in ministry for about 15, 16 years now, and um, I guess people are curious as to how pastors get their call. I sometimes wonder too. Uh, some people have asked me, Pastor James, you know, how did you choose to be a pastor? How did you choose to be a pastor? And the best answer is that I didn't. I didn't choose it. It chose me. I would say God chose me. You know, I, I wasn't born into a story where I said, God, like, when's the, when's the pastoral volunteer sign-up sheet? How do I sign up for that role? That was never my story. I had other plans. I had plans to be on the golf course on the rest of my life and playing professionally, making a lot of money, and being on TV. That was my plan. But God had another plan. I want you to see, I want you to see that your suffering is not wasted. And no matter what evil or hardship or affliction you're going through and around the world, we just prayed for Lebanon and the devastation there. There's a lot of suffering in the world. There's a global pandemic that we're still in. There are ripple effects still that we're going through. But I want you to be able to see that God chose you and I. He chose the church for this particular time in history for a particular purpose. And he does not waste suffering. God chooses us for his purpose and so our job is just to trust the process, trust him in the process, which leads me to my last point. And it's that the goal then 
is not to know God's plan, but to trust that it's good. Did you guys hear me? Yeah, I, I, there's an empty room, and so I didn't, I didn't hear any amens, but amen by myself, because I think this is a huge reality and truth that I think will change our lives. That as we understand that God has a sovereign plan and a redemptive plan for the world, for you, for me, our goal is not to know the very details of God's plan. Our goal and our job is to trust him that he's good and his plans are good. You guys may be familiar with a verse in Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11. I want to have you guys see this on the screen as well. But Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Isn't that an awesome verse? Awesome passage, right? He says, I know the plans that I have for you. Uh, Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I mean, this has been a comforting verse, I'm sure, for many of you. This this has been one of those poster board verses that you're going to find on uh, framed on on the wall, uh, something that you want to decorate with in your house. When you go to campsites, that might be on the wall or somewhere. You you know, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. How beautiful is that? Right? uh, For welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It's so encouraging. And you even write Jeremiah 29 on encouragement cards as we write email. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. But there's something interesting about this verse that maybe you and I haven't noticed, right? And in fact, I would, I would even say it may not even be that comforting. I want you to follow me here. This verse may not even be that comforting because I want you to see what it really says. Because it doesn't say, for we know the plans that God has for us. It doesn't say, for the church knows the plans that he has for us. It doesn't say, church of the beloved knows the plans that he has for us. It doesn't know every Christian knows the plans that he has for us. It doesn't say, James knows the plans that he has for us. You know what it says? It says, I know. In other words, God is saying, he knows the plans that he has, meaning we still do not know. Amen by myself. Do you guys see that? Like now it's kind of uncomfortable because we read that and we're like, oh, that's, that's very poetic for I know the plans that I have for you. But I want you to think about that. It doesn't say that we know the plans. It doesn't say the church, the leadership doesn't know the plans or we, that we do. It doesn't say that every Christian knows the details. It doesn't even say Moses knows the plans. It says God knows the plans that he has for us. So we still don't know. And so if we still don't know, then what's our role? Our role is not to know. Our role is to trust. When my son comes to me and asks me questions, what are we doing today? What are we, what are we doing tomorrow? What, what, what's, what am I getting for, you know, Christmas? Or my birthday? I, I don't need to tell him every detail. I just need him to know that the plans that his mom and dad have for him are good. And that's God to us, right? He doesn't say, for we know. He says, he knows. God knows. So the goal for us is not to know every step. Though that would be good. 
right? For you planners and type A and organize, you know, organizational kind of people, it would be awesome to know the five-year plan God has for us, but we do not know. We don't even know what's going to come tomorrow, the book of James says. But we can trust his every step. And church, I want you to be encouraged that God does lead us in every step. That God is with us. And his grace is sufficient through our weakness. His power rests on us in times of weakness. And I hope as I close, I hope that this story of Moses would encourage us today as we see the good news of the gospel through Exodus, that no matter what circumstance or struggle or story that we've been born into or going through right now, God does not waste our suffering. He can use it for his glory and for our good. And my prayer is that may that be true of you and may that be true of me. May that be true of our church. May that be true of every person listening today. May we surrender to God things that we were never meant to control and trust his good plan, his goodness, giving thanks for his grace and his provisions along the way. May we trust that his plan is good.